0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to Everywhere is College Park. This is your host, Enjoy. And I hope you enjoy yourself this episode. We have a lot packed this episode. And primarily what it has to do with is why is it that black people still distrust the medical research profession? Like there's still... A some kind of not really tank, but just a negative feeling towards either signing up for clinical trials, being part of any kind of medical research, or just being a part of any kind of observational even experiments going on. And there's just still this very much so um, distrust that goes on. And we talk about that. So this week we talk about why it is the black community still to this day has a mistrust in the medical research profession. And I also encounter some insight as to how some white people may just think Tuskegee is the end all be all to the mistreatment of blacks in the medical community and how that mistreatment still goes on today as far as implicit bias and discrimination goes. So this story comes by way of a series of personal experiences, most of which have happened this year in 2018, but just from how I've encountered about African Americans and their distrust in medical research. So a colleague of mine who is a clinical research coordinator, he was trying to get us, get community aware of a study that's going on and this study is called ethic, and what that means is it is from informed consent which means being that this type of study in order to go on or to run smoothly it has to be done in emergent situations in emergent situations when it's a life-or-death situation you don't really have time to ask people if you can be enrolled in the study, now, <clears throat> being that this device, when it's when it's cleared in Fda, when when the company can prove that in emergent situations that this will save someone's life, it will be um, available for everybody to use. So that's why we do these research studies. So a colleague of mine, he um, is a research coordinator, and his study has to do with stroke. And as you know, with stroke, it's very um, emergent, it's very life or death, and a lot goes on in the emergency room when someone comes in, in in the emergency department due to stroke. So this study was going to look at if the outcomes of people who have stroke, if if it's better if they go into the cath lab or if they stay in the emergency department. And this type of study, this type of study being that It has to do with an emergent situation. You don't really have time to find someone and consent them, especially when they have a stroke. They may not be alert or able to consent at the time. So you are allowed to conduct studies on things like this. Um, However, you have to get IRB approval, which is the Institutional Review Board, in order to get this type of, Study approved. It goes through multiple levels of approval, and it has to adhere to federal regulations. According to, um, and to, according to federal reg- regulations, is what the IRB is going to hold that study to. So, assuming all the necessary, proper channels are um, approved, you can do this type of study. You have to consult the community. Um, And essentially, if you go into the ED with a stroke, depending on the situation, you could be enrolled in a study. Now, when they're done with the study, they have to make every attempt to consent you and say, do you still want to participate? And that would be the opportune time to say yay or nay. So in order to do that, like I said, you have to do a lot of community consultation. I... I offered this suggestion that, hey, my sorority is having a health fair. Why don't you come and and you can potentially talk about the study there? Well, I talk about it with some of the health committee members, two of which are older in their 60s. One is actually a public health professional. She works for the CDC. The other lady, I'm not sure what she does. However, I brought the proposal up to them and... The CDC lady, she was open to it, however, when the other woman said, she immediately said verbatim, research, oh, you know research, you know when our people hear research, you know what that means, and I just, I kind of somewhat got offended because I work in research, and I'll get to that later. She didn't even really give me a chance, and it was just almost shut down from the beginning, And that is kind of what got the wheels turning in my mind about, wow, there's still a stigma and a distrust for medical research. And that furthers into my, a few weeks later, I get an email. A few weeks later, I get an email from, we have like these grand rounds in emergency medicine. And there was a particular doctor, uh, Dr. Ford, who was doing a, a particular topic on African Americans and the distrust in the medical profession. So he did his talk, and um, I was actually talking to one of my coworkers, and I asked him if he was going, and he said that he, he may or may not go. He said that if it's just about Tuskegee and everything that happened with that. He may not go because he used to teach the class. He used to teach about Tuskegee and everything that happened with that. So I just said okay. And he said he used to teach a class about uh, what's going on in Tuskegee. But it kind of came off as I basically already know all that there is to know about black people in the injustices that they faced when it came to medical research, because I used to teach a class on the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. So that's that's kind of how I took it. But um, so I attended Dr. Ford's lecture, and I enjoyed it very much. I actually tried to get him to be a guest on the show, and if he would come and ask and answer a few questions for me. But he has yet to. He responded, but he has yet to follow up. So. I'll just take that as he's not interested anymore. But I did kind of want to talk about some of the people that he talked about because I don't think a lot of these people get a lot of recognition. And I don't think it's talked about enough. Although a lot of what he talked about in his lecture, I did learn and in- I had to wait until I went to college to learn about. It still was kind of a good reminder of at least the American medical profession wouldn't be where it is or if it wasn't for the unconsented, involuntary, you know, bodies, black bodies, poor bodies, women's bodies that they used to advance medical science. Off the pain and the torture that they suffered in order for them these white men to be labeled as great pioneers, you know, novelists and medical research off the expense of the torture of other people who didn't have a voice. And there's so many times in history where that's happened, literally since the inception of slavery, just using black bodies to further an agenda of science for fame and the exploitation. And it's not just science, it goes into the arts, it goes into whatever field you can think of. But right now, we're talking about medical research. So where where can we even start? I don't really want to start with Tuskegee, but I do want to start there because it's the most common, I guess, and the most talked about. For those who may or may not know, I'm just going to give a brief synopsis of what Tuskegee is about is or what happened in Tuskegee, and I think a good movie to watch that really kind of explains the history about the Tuskegee experiment is Mrs. Evers' Boys, and it's Lawrence Fishburne is in it, and he actually also produced the movie as well. Alfred Woodward, Joe Martin are also in the movie, Ossie Davis, who played Mr. Evers, So this movie came out in 1997 and basically it chronicles the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. So for those who may not know, the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment was a government funded experiment basically that was done from 1932 to 1972 where it was designed basically to study the effects of untreated syphilis. Now. What happens is in some of those cases, some men were injected with syphilis and the study was basically going on unethically to study the effects of syphilis. A hundred men died and in turn gave syphilis to their partner. Some men went blind. And again, this study was funded by the public health service at the time. And all the while, penicillin was available to these men and they kept saying that as they were getting "Quote," I'm putting air quotes up. Treatment for their syphilis. Result: They were never told that they had syphilis. They were just told that they had bad blood, right? And that the reason why they kept going to the doctor or the special doctor was because they were getting special special treatments for their bad blood, which really they were just getting some sugar water and you know an aspirin to go home. So they used this black nurse who kind of helped them who the government recruit uh, men for this study and the thing to note here is that the only reason why that this study stopped in 1972 which wasn't that long ago was because a journalist found out it was going on she had exposed the truth and that's when the study stopped otherwise it would have kept going and Lord knows how long it would have kept going the 70s wasn't that long ago, and when you think about it, it's kind of, we have IRBs in part was because of the Tuskegee um, syphilis experiment, or the reason why we now have consent, and it just built upon that, but IRBs are started in the 70s, and this experiment ended in the 70s, and unfortunately because of this event, this is what sparked the creation of institutional institutional review boards however something like that should have been been created earlier so again with this movie the movie is although the history is real the part that's fictional is the nurse and her role and her life and you know she falls in love and the movie stays pretty true to the to the actual historical events but that's nothing new. medical profession has been using black bodies literally since, since inception. Medical schools would use black slave cadavers as their autopsy for their experiments. Never use the white graves. They would literally dig up the graves of black slaves and use their bodies in their um, autopsies for medical schools. And digging up graves was for black I mean for slaves is pretty common doctors use black slaves bought and freed for medical experimentation all the time in the south there's a doctor who attended the University of Georgia by the name of Dr. Crawford Long he is most notable for creating um, basically an anesthesia for surgeries and things like that Whoa, well, he actually experimented anesthesia on black bodies before his claim to fame and that's who he used his experiments on were on blacks and slaves at that time coincidentally Emory had a hospital named after him it was Emory Crawford Long Hospital but now it's just called Emory Midtown Hospital I wonder about the name change again that's nothing new we can go down to we can go down to basically every state in this country practicing some type of eugenics and what that is is basically a forced sterilization. Just about every single state practiced it at one time. The most notorious that I've heard so far was Mississippi and North Carolina. If you read the cases about Fannie Lou Hammer, her uterus was removed without her knowing and she was really the crusader of making this known among the, among the public. She, since it happened to her, she wanted to bring awareness out that this was going on throughout the country. Mostly southern states employed sterilization as a means to control African-American populations. So they, in Mississippi, they dubbed, this was dubbed the Mississippi appendectomies, right? So that was also another name for the amount of unnecessary hysterectomies that were performed at teaching hospitals in the South on women of color as a practice for medical students, but it wasn't just performed at teaching hospitals. Like this was done at state institutions, it was done at mental um, institutions, it was done at juvenile detention centers. It was pretty much done to any Black woman who was deemed unfit or. An imbecile, or a lunatic, or someone who was just unfit to raise kids, to have kids. If you were in jail, you were automatically unfit to have children. Don't get me started on the amount of forced prison sterilizations that are still going on to this day. Even from back then, there's so many stories, especially women in Mississippi, um, juvenile delinquents. Some women, some. Girls as young as nine getting hysterectomies because they were raped. In the case of Elaine Riddick, I don't. She was raped at the age of either thirteen or fourteen, and when she <clears throat> gave birth, they took her uterus out as well. No one told her, and this this was the case of a lot of women, young girls in Mississippi at that time, and in North Carolina were either raped, had incest, or were molested, and they had forced sterilizations either after the baby or shortly then afterwards at some point. They were coerced or without their knowing to have a sterilization. So this was common practice. A third of the sterilizations done in North Carolina were done on girls under 18 and some, as I said, even as young as nine. And the state of North Carolina actually targeted individuals that were seen as delinquent or, or quote unquote, unwholesome. So that was very common. This is nothing new. And a lot of states actually per- participated in that type of sterilization. So it wasn't just black women. It was Puerto Rican women. It was poor white women. It was Mexican women. It was... Um, basically, who anyone who wasn't rich, um, I would say, if you were poor or white, if you're poor, didn't matter if you were white or not. If you were a woman, if you lived in the United States anywhere from nineteen twenties to the nineteen seventies, you had a chance at one point of getting a unwanted or forced hysterectomy. Karen Hunter had a guest. If you listen to Karen Hunter, she a, has a radio show on Sirius XM. I called into her show a few times. You may have heard her on the podcast. Um, she had a guest on her show who had gotten out of prison, turned her life around, and decided to write a book about her prison life and or, or at least talk about it. I can't remember the guest's name at the time of this recording, however, she told the story about how she was 16 and she went into a juvenile incarceration in, um, in Mississippi. She had went in to get her appendix removed because she had appendicitis. She had contracted appendicitis when she was in the detention center. She went in to get her appendix removed come to find out they removed her appendix and her uterus as well. I don't recall how she found out that she got a hysterectomy, but she did recall how upset her mother was because no one told her mother that she was getting a hysterectomy and nor did they consent to doing anything like that goes on to talk about her story, about how her her story is not isolated, nor is it not unique in the state of Mississippi. Again, this is very frequent. She's just one out of thousands of women who have got forced, forced sterilization. Again, she was 16 when that happened. And documentation shows that it's been going on to girls as young as nine. They go to mental institutions. And if you were deemed... And they even gave forced sterilizations to women who they thought had too many kids. Whether you were white or black, the state of North Carolina, if they felt that you had too many children, they could force you to get sterilization. Dr. Ford went on in his lecture to talk about quite a few examples of injustices in medical research done at the expense of black bodies. Again, this is a semester long worth of stuff and he only had an hour to highlight probably the most pertinent cases and then there's probably cases that we'll never know about because they just weren't documented this is the stuff that was just documented so I can't imagine a world out there of what we don't know and what we will possibly never know some of the examples that Dr. Ford talked about were about the first black man to be injected with plutonium and how the government actually gave money to the scientists to conduct radiation experiments at the expense of black bodies. He talked about the University of Cincinnati and the cancer patients, how they are given different doses, and the black patients were given less treatment than the whites, and this was done in the 1970s at the expense of black bodies. Blacks were given higher doses of radiation for radiation experiments per false studies of radiation experiments on blacks so not only were they given higher doses of lethal doses of radiation but this was all all based off false information also at the expense of black bodies he talked about the la riots in 1965 violence among the blacks and how white neurologists were trying to justify and really believe that the reason why blacks were acting around were because of cranial diseases that were only inherited by black and they were awarded money to study type of bullshit like that at the expense of black bodies. Dr. Klegman who we most known as basically the inventor of retin did it at the expense of prisoners, mostly at the expense of black bodies. He used prisoners to basically come up with medications to cure STDs, drugs, offer the prisoners money. I mean, he he used them for a lot of things, to test new shampoos. Stuff would give them rashes, make their hair fall out. But he coerced them with money. I mean, he offered them a lot. And this went on for years, which is appalling to me as an IRB professional. The, the, one of the many things that they ingrain in you is vulnerable populations, which is pregnant women, fetuses, children, and prisoners. And to hear about all this going on in, in, you know within the 20th century, post-IRBs, is quite frightening. The LA County Children's Measles Experiment was done at the expense of black bodies look it up if you don't know and then dr ford also talked about dr ford also talked about recent post irb studies that were going on from 2009 to 2015 um, in regards to a child psychologist and using uh, lithium if he gives me permission to use some of his audio i'll play some of that however a lot of this comes from cover what who I really really want to talk about because it's been going on recently this year in 2018 is Dr. James Marion Sims now he is a 19th century surgeon who has been dubbed you know the father of gynecology been praised among the medical professions and basically this white man could do no wrong because he was a true pioneer in, in gynecology well the reason why he was a pioneer is because he did so at the expense of black bodies black female bodies he became a benefactor basically of women for devising ways to repair severe vaginal injuries that can occur during childbirth so that's, that's what rose his fame was that he was able to basically re- repair that entire area after a woman has given, you know, a tumultuous childbirth. However, he basically crafted his skills at the expense of black slaves. That's how he experimented. His early attempts also failed quite often. One woman by the name of her name Berisha and Narsha and Narsha. Um, he experimented on her 30 times. Often the women had to be held down during these excruciating operations. Even though ether was available at the time, he refused to use it on the black slaves. So he didn't give them anything. And again, he's if you're a woman, you know how sensitive the area is down there. He he would just operate on these women with no nothing. Just go in there and these are difficult difficult surgeries to do but he would always give the white women ether and at that time you know it was still very much so uncanny for a man to be in a woman's business like that and so he was praised for quote-unquote being brave enough to actually look at a woman's vagina thoroughly and the fact that it was a black woman's, it was just very, at the time, risque that he did things like that. So, again, he, this man was praised for this type of behavior, but however, in the Book of Medical Apartheid, written by Miss Harriet Washington, she kind of digs a little bit deeper into that. She actually says, although at the time this was in the 1800s, it may kind of seem like that's all that they had then, and that's kind of of how they had to go about performing surgeries. She makes the argument that no, even though it was, you know, they had to do what they had to do back then, it was still considered barbaric then. Like even then, people were like, this is a little barbaric. And oftentimes the experiments going on and using blacks were often meaningless and poorly designed. And they did it out of theories of how black people could possibly be inferior to white, what makes them different. That's basically what their science is based off of. How different are black people from white, for the most part. And this behavior continued well into the 20th century, okay? But to kind of go back to J. Marion Sims, he had a statue in, in Central Park that has recently within the last few months has gotten removed and there the city is removing it and putting it by his headstone right so his uh resting place so why did they do this there's a great new york times article written by sarah zhang it kind of digs into why all of a sudden people are realizing that this man is actually a monster more so no more than he is a pioneer in gynecology. So she says, This move came decades after a concentrated effort by historians, scholars, and activists basically re-examined Sim's entire legacy. Medical professionals, especially gynecologists, haven't really taken kindly to outsiders. However, people have really been upset, and there's been growing, growing controversy of his practices, right? So she goes on to talk about how there are actually a few doctors who came to uh, Sims' defense who actually tried to defend his legacy. And there was one doctor, Iron Kaiser, who basically said that Sims helped the enslaved woman he experimented on, right? And that basically he practiced on those enslaved women to repair their vagina after a long after a complication of prolonged labor and he basically said that the condition can be embarrassing as women that are unable con- to control their urination and he said in the long run they had reasons to be grateful that sims had cured them of their urinary leakage that's that that was a product of his era. he said that they the enslaved woman should be Thankful that that Dr. Sims stopped their uncontrollable leakage problem. So at the expense of excruciating pain, going under surgery without any kind of anesthesia or ether to help, doing the same surgery 30 times on one woman, having to be pinned down, probably screaming... Her ass off, trying to get the hell out of there. Would you want to be put under the knife with no anesthesia? How is that helping? Was she complaining about her uncontrollable urinating problem? That's that's what I don't know. Did she consent to that? Did she say she wanted the surgery? He he didn't he didn't talk about any of that. All he cared about was that they were being helped of their uncontrollable urinating problem that they never mentioned that they had in the first place. So of course that didn't respond well a lot of criticism over that one comment. And over the next few decades, scholars continue to criticize uh, Sims' practice of of experimenting on enslaved women. She goes on to say how this is relatable to the Tuskegee experiments Henrietta lacks and how the entire American medical system has exploited African Americans from the start. It's just funny because she also mentions how Textbooks were slow to mention the controversy. The controversy over Sin's legacy. So, in 2011, they found that medical books still continue to praise him. However, there are some who are now starting to note that how he became famous was at the expense of black bodies. What started happening was um, in 2006, the University of Alabama at Birmingham removed the painting that depicted Sims as the medical giants of Alabama. In February of that year, the Medical University of South Carolina quietly renamed their endowed chair to another name, and now his statue is being relocated to his to the cemetery in brooklyn where he was laid to rest and so there was this one the new york times article also um the writer also talks about this one historian by the name of dj cooper owens who said that so sims was able to advance quickly because he had access to bodies which bodies he had access to black bodies right First, he had access to enslaved women in the South, and then later he had access to poor Irish Irish women when he moved to New York. So she argues that these institutions that existed in this country, which allowed easy access to enslaved women's bodies and poor women's bodies, allowed certain branches of professional medicine to advance and grow and also become legitimate. So again, these are the stories of quote-unquote great men, right? And it's often been written from the scope and perspective of quote-unquote great men, but at whose expense are they performing these experiments on and getting notoriety and credibility, getting these studies published on who? On these bodies that are Black. So at the expense of Black bodies and torture throughout the medical research, from the beginnings have white men been able to advance literally the the slaves. And again, one of the reasons why Crawford Long and Sims, James Marion Sims didn't use anesthesia with their black patients was because of this belief that inherent belief, false unsubstantiated belief that, that blacks could potentially have a higher pain tolerance than whites again this is i still don't know where this claim comes from it's been around since slavery that blacks cannot feel pain and if they do it's it's very little pain and it's just always been they've had a higher pain tolerance than white people which is not true at all that claim is completely unsubstantiated and it's been around clearly since sims time right and that claim still resonates today. Still, there's still implicit bias and discrimination that goes on with the treatment of black women and how they're cared for in the healthcare arena. And it literally sometimes just comes down to pain. And the story that I have to share with you is with Serena Williams, right? So she had a very scary childbirth story and she was very vocal about the medical mistreatment that she faced as a black woman. This is no isolated incident. Black women are often dismissed or ignored by medical care providers, and Serena was no different. So Serena did in, did an article in Vogue kind of chronicling or highlighting, not necessarily highlighting, her childbirth experience, but the overall article was about just being a new mom and things like that. But she talked about her scary childbirth experience not only just the risks that come with childbirth, but just the mistreatment of black women in general. So in February 2018, Vogue did a cover story. Serena so kind of explained that the problem started literally the day after she gave she gave birth and she had a c-section. So she fell short of breath and cough frequently due to embolisms, and the coughs were forceful enough for her C-section room to actually rupture, right? That's how forceful her coughs were. So she went in for surgery and the doctors found that she had a hematoma filled in her abdomen as a result of the blood thinners. So a filter was placed into one of her major veins to keep more blood clots from traveling into her lungs. And when she finally turned home, all she needed was six weeks of bread breast. The thing about this is her her incident is not uncommon. And actually, when I had my daughter, um, a friend of mine who was pregnant with me at the same time, she had her daughter around a day or so later than I did, she almost died for the same reason, blood clots. She fortunately got the care that she needed. However, the clotting is very serious when it comes to black women for some reason. The the article actually says that there's about 50,000 women, and that's actually on the lower end um, of women in America who deal with dangerous or life-threatening pregnancy-related complications each year. And for black women, we just proportionally face these complications and we are more likely to die from these complications three to four times more likely than white women to face pregnancy related complications and this is nothing new There's a I, I really want to do a whole episode on black women and uh, maternal mortality and black women in the United States because it's going even higher and this isn't a problem that you can educate your way out of as you can see with Serena that this is not a problem that you can income climb your way out of or upward mobility your way out of sociological term and this isn't a, a problem that you can marry white and have a white husband see your way out of. This is an implicit bias, discrimination, just long-held medical belief that black women are inherently more tolerant to pain, A, number one, and two, that they just aren't listened to and don't deserve the type of treatment that I guess the white counterparts deserve. And what's troubling to me is that when you play that game of, even if they have access to the care that they need, they still don't get the treatment, right? So you wonder why there's a distrust in the medical field or dis- distrust in medical research among the um, African American population. And then there's that whole thing is if you go and ask questions, some physicians take that as kind of how can you kind of question me when I went to medical school and studied this stuff for four years, whereas you, the patient, probably just Googled this or used WebMD, and you're trying to tell me something that I went to school and studied and did four years of residency or what have you, WebMD. And I get it. I understand it from that perspective. However, and I've witnessed this myself just from my own interactions of going to the doctor, that there's just this kind of air that. Inherently, the patient absolutely knows nothing about their bodies. There's this kind of, not necessarily condescending, but there is this low bar of communicating. And I guess they kind of have to be for health literacy reasons. You really don't know where people's health literacy is at, especially with themselves. However, I don't feel as though I come across as a woman who is, one, uneducated Number two, even if I was, I feel as though I speak well in a sense that my grammar is good enough that I feel like I can understand things. I don't need you to reduce things to a first grade level to speak to me. So I think that's kind of where I stand. And just from being young, I guess, and not being vocal about my health care, I've had that sort of condescending, like, you need to do this this, 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 that, and the other, and it was like there was no room for questioning, or um, if I did question, again, I was met with that air of you're not a doctor type of thing. So I can understand how this mistrust continues, and I even had friends in college who I'm friends with still to this day who will go to the doctor for certain things, but not for other things. They will go get two, three, four opinions before they just settle on one and me as someone who is in the clinical research field I'm often conflicted between the two between being black and culturally having this disbelief that doctors are humans too and they don't know necessarily every single thing that can possibly go however the educated me and the clinical research part of me, uh, actually back to the black side of me, and then when you draw on the historical context of everything that primarily you know, white physicians have done to black bodies, I can't ignore that historical context, and that's always going to be in the back of my mind with everything. So I have the history and the cultural aspect, right, of my blackness kind of on one side. Then I have the educated side that has a master's degree in public health and understands how much research, and especially community-based and evidence-based research, fuels and drives legislation and creates new regulations such as IRBs, Institutional Review Boards, Research Oversight Committees. And in order for, to do that, we have to conduct research. And how do we conduct research? We need people to be in them, and especially with new drugs. And the majority of the people who are just happen to be, well, depending on the indication and the drug type, happen to be Caucasian men and women. And thus, the drugs that are out there, a lot of them, are based off the chemistry of white people and that's because we don't have enough black people getting into this research and I get it that the distrust in medical research that's an experiment but we've come a long way from Tuskegee from using slaves as the basis for medical experimentation and advancement we've come a long way from that and though it's very rare that instances of injustices and medical mistreatment and malpractice happen. And they happen everywhere, but they're rare. However, that shouldn't stop the mass of us getting involved in research and really understanding how these new drugs work with people of all backgrounds. And we need to understand that we're trying to advance medical science that benefits us and the only way that we can do that is if we become a part of it. Moving forward is to get into clinical research or research studies that benefit our black communities. So let's see what we can do with diabetes studies, right? Or heart disease studies or cancer studies. The chronic diseases that affect black communities the most, those are the type of research that we should be involved in the most because they affect our community so heavily, okay? Just don't think it's fair that we isolate ourselves because of past historical injustices. I don't think that we should forget them and always keep them in mind. But with that said, we also need to move forward and move towards advancement and finding a cure for the very diseases that are plaguing our community. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Enjoy. Music from FreeMusicArchive.com. Artist Lee Rosefear. Album Music for Podcast 5. Songs All the Answers. Thinking it over. Everywhere. Knowing the truth. Decompress. This is Everywhere.